Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for November 9th, 2022. I got 15 books to talk about, so I'm going to dive right in pretty quick. But just a reminder, if you're looking for the DC books, those are on our DC Spotlight that we do every Tuesday in collaboration with Rocky from Comic Boom. So you can go to the Comic Boom YouTube channel, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. And watch the uh, reviews, deep dive with spoilers and shown art, plot points, characterization, all that stuff. Or you can listen to the audio only version from a regular podcast feed. Uh, but keep in mind that there are spoilers. So if you want to be sure not to have anything spoiled, read this week's DC books first and then check out the DC episode. But otherwise, today, as always, New Comics Wednesday episode going to be spoiler free. I'm going to talk about 15 books that I've had a chance to uh, to check out already. I got the Marvel books pretty late, so I'm actually recording this really late. So hopefully I'm not too tired and uh, I can give you guys uh, a good recap of some of these great books that are out this week. So let me go ahead and, uh, and dive right in. Let's pull up the first book in front of me. And the first book I'm going to talk about tonight is Starhenge, book one, The Dragon and the Boar. Uh, this is issue number five of this first volume, and this just continues to be such a fantastic book, mixing in the myths and the lore of the United Kingdom, specifically Merlin and King Arthur, and going backwards and forwards in time with ancient gods and futuristic cybernetic robots, and it's just, it's such a story that's huge in scope. I've talked about that a lot. And with Liam Sharp's art that he brings to it, and I should say it's written by him, it's illustrated by him, it's lettered by him. So he's really, I mean, this is a passion project for him, and he's hes really outdone himself on this art. But the art is so transcendent. It's so majestic. It's, you know, Frazetta or Dave McKean. It's its just incredible, the, um, the detail, the emotion, the feeling that the art evokes. And again, I've said this a lot about this book. When you look at this art, and I've said this again all the time about Liam's artwork in comics, that it it transcends the medium. It's fine art in comic book form. So when you see that, you know, you might think, oh, this story is going to come off as pretentious or complicated or convoluted. And that's certainly, you know, a risk that Liam took and, you know, his main character in the book, Amber, she kind of narrates for us and she has such a irreverent way of speaking, such an irreverent tone, it's very self-deprecating. And it brings a level of humor and relatability and humanity to the story. But beneath that is still this sense of scope, the sense of an epic story, the sense of all of us being as insignificant as a little dust moat floating in the air amongst this giant story that that Liam is telling. And I've always been a sucker for King Arthur stories, so I appreciate that. But to transcend that, because, I mean, there's a lot of King Arthur stories out there. I mean, we even have one coming out right now that it might have just concluded um, Once in Future from Kieran Gillen over at Boom, which has been a fantastic series. Um, And much like Kieran Gillen, who, you know, has that lineage uh, Liam does as well. So when he's telling this story, it, in my mind, it has a little more weight to it because this is something, you know, the myth of King Arthur, Arthurian legends, it's so, it's so ingrained in, in people who grow up in the UK. I feel like, you know, um, it's just a, a, a part of them. Um, and so I always appreciate when somebody who, who's from there, you know, a native, um, Englander, if you will, tells this story because I feel like they have a different perspective on it um, and can put a different spin on it. So, you know, I've said from the very first issue of the series that I I feel it's worthy of being nominated for some Eisners and I I hope it is. And I I hope it wins because it's certainly deserving. And and part of the reason I hope it is, is because again, I just don't hear enough people talking about this. You know, every time there's an issue that comes out, I'm blown away once again it's almost like even myself, the fact that I love each of these issues, I, I sort of forget in between issues just how good this is, right? Like a new one comes out. I'm like, oh, okay. Next issue of Star Hinge is out. Um, excited to, to read it. 
excited to, you know, see where it's going to go. And as I start reading it, I don't really, although there's a sense of anticipation because I'm such a fan of Liam's work, I'm not like over overly excited. You know, I'm not like, oh, I can't wait to read this. I can't wait to read this. I'm, you know, it's it's a it's a level of anticipation. It's a level of expectation. Um, but man, every time I finish reading it, like I get to that last page and it's over, and I. I'm on this high, like, man, that is just so damn good. Like every time, every single issue. And I don't know if it's just Liam, you know, um, raising the bar every single issue or what, but it's astounding to me that he continues to just push the bar and continues to excite me and continues to just generate this emotion in me as a reader Every time I read an issue, I'm blown away again. Like, oh my God, it's almost, again, it's almost like I forget just how good it is. Like in my mind, I know it's good. I remember that I've read the previous ones and I've loved every issue and I'm always impressed by it. And yet somehow he manages to impress me again. <laughs> Re-impress me, is that a word? Uh, he manages to impress me again with each subsequent issue. So again, I hope it wins awards because not enough people talking about this. I feel like not enough people buying it. And so maybe if it gets some Eisner love, um, it'll sell even more in trade and we'll get another uh, another volume because I, I think Liam had it planned out for three volumes, but I don't think the sales on this um, necessarily are going to allow him to do uh, another volume. And again, it's a big story. And so I'd like to see it um, reach its conclusion. So um, I say all that to say this, just please go and check it out. Uh, I think, you know, art, artistically, it's worth looking at. It's worth enjoying. Uh, there's a high readability factor, both visually and narratively, because it is such a big story and because the art is so beautiful. So I'm um, not, not just saying that because I'm a fan of, of Liam. Like, I think objectively, this is just a very, very special comic. So uh, do yourself a favor and go check it out. All right, up next, we have the second issue of Three Keys. This is from Image, written by David Messina. He's also the artist on it. Um, kind of similar to um, to uh, Starhenge in a way, being that it's kind of this fantastical world. We have two characters that are the main characters, Noah, who's actually a, a girl, and then Theon, who's this anthropomorphic tiger, who we learn in this issue is one of only three beings left of, of his race. And uh, Noah is kind of the inheritor of, of uh, like some sort of mystical or magical key. And it's uh, something that can open doors between worlds. So again, it's not the, the you know, the most um, original idea, but her and Theon are, are basically in New York city and, maybe the walls it's not exactly clear what's going on but maybe the the walls between worlds are breaking down and it's allowing magic and monsters to leak into new york city and so um no and theon are taking it upon themselves to figure out what's going on and find out why all these monsters and all this magic is showing up in new york city while she still has to protect that key to make sure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands so Again, it's a, it's a fantastical story. It's uh, not, like I said, the most original idea, but Messina presents it in a very pleasing way. His art is awesome. Um, Noah's really interesting looking. She wears a sleeveless sh- shirt most of the time, and she's got sleeves uh, of tattoos. She wears these really cool uh, like red uh, Chuck Taylor shoes. Um it's just a very, um, a very sexy looking book in a lot of ways. The color is is really great. Um, colors are by uh, uh, David Messina and uh, Alessandro Alexis. Uh, letters are by Sean Lee, and I'm I'm just really loving it. I I think the first issue was a good start. This issue, the pacing sort of slows down a little bit, and we get a lot of action. 
but I do wish if I have any complaint and it's a minor nitpick. I do wish we got a little more, um, not necessarily exposition, but just a little more story in this one. Um, because it, it feels like we get a lot of action in here, but it doesn't feel like we get as big of a chunk of story as we did in the, in the first issue. But man, it, this book is worth picking up just for the art alone. Theon, this, um, you know, anthropomorphic uh, tiger, he's a black and white tiger. He, he just looks awesome. He looks so cool. And, uh, and Noah as well, just very, very cool looking. Um, like I said, I, I love her her tennis shoes. They just look really great. So based on the strength of the visuals is kind of where I got sucked into this book. Um, and the story's interesting enough, but two issues in, I'm not still not exactly sure what's happening. So it's tough to recommend purely on the the story alone, but I think when you add in Messina's artwork, it, uh, it's definitely worth a read. Uh, all right. Up next, we have the, f- First Marvel book this week, Amazing Spider-Man number 13. This is from writer Zeb Wells. John Romita Jr. is the penciler. Scott Hanna on inks. Marcio Menez on colors. And Joe Caramagna on letters. Uh, last issue, the big bombshell that dropped was that there was actually two hobgoblins that have come back to fight Peter. I won't tell you uh, who they are, even though it got revealed last issue. So we see a, a big, big battle between... Um, Peter and the two hobgoblins, and it takes up the majority of the issue before he's rescued, sort of, or assisted by um, by someone. I, again, I won't spoil who it is. If you've been reading Amazing Spider-Man, you can probably guess, but it's who it is is interesting. And then in the last couple of pages, we find out that there's somebody else, a return of a relatively new character from the pages of Amazing Spider-Man, who is pulling the strings of the hobgoblins to manipulate somebody else who's become a pretty big supporting character in the book. So I know I'm being like super vague. It's hard to explain it when I can't actually explain it, um, but go read it, check it out. Zebwells has definitely planted the seeds for something interesting. And I can't help but wonder how this leads into dark web, which is the big Spider-Man event that's coming soon, kind of a crossover event. Um, and also how this might lead into the Golden Goblin, which is, a, I think it's a mini series, not an ongoing, but a mini that Christopher Cantwell is going to be writing that was teased or first announced at San Diego Comic-Con this year. So I'm a big fan of, uh, of Christopher Cantwell's work, as anybody who listens to the podcast pro- probably knows. So I'm, I'm really excited to see Cantwell's work um, in the Spider-Man corner of the Marvel Universe. So we'll see how that works out. Um, but you know, the hop goblin, green goblin, um, those guys are all real classic, maybe the most classic of Spider-Man villains. We talk about green goblin, you know, kind of his number one nemesis and then all the different offshoots that we've had, um, since then hobgoblins and queen goblins and now a golden goblin. So how this all plays out, how Peter handles it, um, I'm interested to see uh, no mention of whatever it is, whatever the big mystery is that has led Peter to his estrangement from his family and friends uh, in recent issues. But I do hope we get an answer to that soon um, because I, you know, I've said it before we're what 13 issues in uh, it's been over a year now and I, I think it's time. <laughs> so I'm planning on going to um, LA comic-con later uh, later this year. Well, I guess December is when it is. Uh, and Zeb Wells is supposed to be there. So I'm going to try to get an interview with him or set up an interview uh, with him at a later time. And, you know, not that I'll, you know, pester him for an answer to what happened because we're not about the spoilers most of the time, except on our DC spotlights. Um, but I'm not going to necessarily pressure him for an answer to what happened. But more I want to know is when are we going to find out? Um is it going to be this year? Is it going to be next year? Are we ever going to find out? Because um, again, it, it doesn't necessarily bother me that we don't know when it's not thrown in my face. And it's definitely not thrown in my face with this issue of Spider-Man, but there are issues where it is more of a story beat, more of a plot point. And the fact that we still don't know just drives me crazy. So 
Um, as far as the art goes in this, I mean, it's John Romita Jr. art. So we all know how I feel about his art. Um, I was actually reading, I think it was an old issue of Iron Man, which I think was the first regular monthly gig that uh, JRJR had. Um, and yeah, it was like from back in the late, 70s or early 80s and i was just blown away by the art i was like man this art is so good it just looks so wildly different from the way jrjr draws now so interesting to me i don't know i mean first of all there's not a lot of artists who have had as long of a career as he has um but i don't know many artists whose style has changed as much um as his has so interesting to me i should ask him about that sometime and I wouldn't want him to think I was insulting him or anything, but yeah, just not a fan of his art these days. Uh, anyway, let's go ahead and move on. Uh, another Marvel book, uh, Avengers number 62 from writer Jason Aaron art is by Yvonne Fiorelli colors by David Carrillo letters by Corey Petit. Um, kind of a, a quick issue. We're, we're sort of getting back to the spotlights. I mean, I guess last issue, even though we had, a lot of the modern Avengers there it was sort of a spotlight on the the star brand of, uh, of the current day. This one's sort of a spotlight on uh, Agamotto, as in the eye of Agamotto that Doctor Strange has. Um, but it's focusing on, you know, the the Avengers of 1 million BC or whoever, but uh, it's focusing on Agamotto um, specifically. And we see his interactions with the big bad behind the multiversal masters of evil. And we see him go out and and do some recruiting. And then on the final page, um, it's a bit of a surprise who Agamotto thinks that the, uh, were they called the Savage Avengers back then? Anyway, the Avengers um, of 1 million BC are going to team up with some other characters and maybe they're finally about ready to take the fight to Mephesto's uh, universal or multiversal masters of evil. So, um, I am more than ready for this fight to go down. It has been a lot of buildup for what feels like years now. Um, but, you know, I've said before, I'm not the biggest fan of this idea that there's always been a Ghost Rider. There's always been a Hulk. There's always been a Phoenix. There's always been a Doctor Strange. It's, you know, kind of similar to how I feel when there's too many Superman family characters or Batman family characters or Spider-Man family characters. You you you're diluting the the IP down so much. You're diluting the character down so much that it kind of loses its uniqueness and and what makes it special. So I'm just not a fan of the fact that yeah, there was a Thor back then. I know it was Odin, whatever, but there was a Ghost Rider back then. Mm, yeah, I'm not a big fan. There's a Star Brand back then. Mm. You know, again, it was it'd be like, well, how come when they debuted, everybody was so surprised that they existed if they've been around, you know, forever reincarnating or passing through different people that we didn't know about. It just, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, we know why publishing wise, because these are relatively new characters that Jason Aaron only has only created in the last couple of years, but created them to have existed in the past. Just never really works for me um, as well as just telling new stories. But uh, I guess you run out of ideas at some point. And it's not to say that this idea of, you know, a, uh, an Avengers team that has to recruit hundreds of Steve Rogers from different multiverses or hundreds of uh, Carol Danvers. Um, that's an interesting idea because this uh, multiversal uh, masters of evil led by Dr. Doom is it's a, f a formidable foe to have to go up against. So by all means, Avengers, you know, get the help that you, that you need to defeat him. But, I don't know. I'm kind of ready for it to be over. To be honest with you, it feels like it's been going on for a really, really long time. So we'll see. Um, but the art is fantastic. Uh, we'll say that and the colors as well. Uh, speaking of events, um, Avengers X-Men Eternals Judgment Day Omega. This is the final chapter of the story. I kind of feel like this one's not necessary. It's more of an epilogue talking about the cleanup. I think the last issue um, of Judgment Day really wrapped everything up really, really well. So if you want to see some of the fallout and some seeds planted for where things go from here, I guess you can pick this up. It's from writer Karen Gellin, who kind of show ran the whole event and wrote uh, the majority of the issues, certainly wrote all the issues, the main series, but also wrote a lot of the tie-in stuff. 
The art is by Guillou Villanova. Andres Mosa does the colors, and Travis Lanham is on letters. So, uh, again, this kind of jumps around as tying up loose ends. We we see Ajax Celestial, who you know Ajax being one of the uh, the Eternals, and she was a, one of the ones that confronted the the progenitor that was judging Earth. And when the progenitor realized he wasn't worthy to judge Earth, he kind of gave all his power to Ajax, and so now she's almost at like God level power and has sort of separated herself from uh, the rest of the Eternals. So we see what's going on with her. We see what's going on with Zeras, who's now the, uh, the eternal prime after Eros kind of gave up the, the ruling uh, crown to him, but Eros is still here. He's still involved as well. Um, so this really does focus mostly on the Eternals. When we do see other, uh, other characters show up, it's sort of tangentially. So this is really the epilogue for, okay, where do the Eternals go from here? We know during the course of the series that Cersei, the Eternal, was actually killed, um, but not until she had the opportunity to confess to everyone on Earth that, the yes, the Eternals are immortal, but every time an Eternal is reborn, um, a human has to die. Like that life force has to come from somewhere. So the Eternals aren't really um, very well-liked by the general population of earth right now. So um, I can definitely see this as sort of uh, an epilogue, just tying up loose ends for the Eternals characters. Uh, now, I don't know if that is just to get them in a place where Karen Gellin can start up another uh, Eternals monthly, or if it's just to, you know, get them in into a spot where Karen can just sort of leave them. And then if somebody else wants to come along at some point and pick them up, it's kind of a, dis- a defined spot, if you will. So kind of curious about that, but again, not a super necessary issue. Definitely felt a bit like an epilogue. So take that uh, as you will. Uh, all right. Another Marvel book up next, Captain America Sentinel of Liberty. This is, this is issue number six from writers, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. Art by Carmen Canero, letters by Joe Caramagna. I'm not even going to spoil what happened last issue in this one. Captain America and Bucky have been going after this really Machiavellian secretive group. Uh, they didn't even know the name of it at first. We've come to know the name is the Outer Circle. And these are the, like the the man behind the man, you know, the, the power, the power brokers. There's five of them. They call all the shots on uh, earth with government and society and culture and that sort of thing. And they've sort of been manipulating Captain America and, and especially Bucky for a really, really long time. And that's all come to a head in last issue. And the fallout from what happens at the end of last issue continues into this issue. And basically what it leads to is a big epic fight between Steve and Bucky and the art in this fight by Carmen Quinero is so amazing. There is little to no dialogue on the majority of these pages and it is not needed at all. She sells it with the action, with the punches, with the emotionality in both the faces and the body language. You feel the angst, you feel the trepidation you feel the reluctance that each of these guys has to fight each other but you also feel their uh their dedication their resolve to their points of view that led them to uh, you know opposite sides of this conflict so uh this issue was just incredible I give huge props to Carmen Canero for such a fantastic job illustrating this fight it rivals anything I've seen in the MCU in terms of a Captain America winter soldier fight, um, which leads me to my next point, which is this story is so good by Lansing and, uh, and Kelly that I would love to see this adapted as an MCU movie. Uh, I think it would be fantastic. Now, some people might say ah, a little bit too much like winter soldier with a secretive organization pulling strings or what have you, but Man, it's so good. It really, really is so good. And uh, I give, again, Carmen Canero a, a lot of credit, and I'm sure um, Jackson and Colin would as well, because she just nails it with this issue. Um, and the, the color work, I should mention as well, by Nolan Woodard is uh, is fantastic. So 
definitely recommend Captain America Sentinel of Liberty. Best Captain America series I've read in a really long time. So pick that up. Uh, I'm not even telling, I'm not even saying if you're so inclined, like pick that book up and read that book. I'm telling you, do it, do it. Uh, all right. Up next, switch back over to image here. We have Dark Ride number two. This is from writer Joshua Williamson. Andre Bresnan is a co-creator and artist. Adriana Lucas on colors. Pat Brosso on letters. A little bit of a time jump between this issue and last. Um, and this issue feels a little bit more like setup. Like the first issue felt like introduction to characters and the the, the actual theme park, horror-themed horror theme park, and being introduced to the, the characters. This issue feels a little bit more like, okay, now that you kind of know what's going on, what the... What the uh, not necessarily what the premise of the story is, but what the setting is, and you've been introduced to a lot of the main characters. Now we're going to time jump forward. We're going to hint at a few of the seeds that were planted in the first issue, but we're going to maneuver some characters around so that in the next issue or perhaps issue four, we're going to drop some big, big story beats. That's how I felt reading this issue. Like there's a sense of anticipation. Um, there's relatability in in all the characters. I, at this point, I couldn't even say, okay, who's the antagonist? Who's the pro, uh, the protagonist? Whose side am I on? Who am I rooting for? Williamson's done such a great job of making these characters feel very real and fully realized and complicated that you know you kind of can relate to them when they say one thing, when then two panels later they're saying something else, and you're like, wait, why? Where's that coming from? And you understand based on the circumstances, why they're saying it. But again, it, it's keeping us readers on our toes in terms of, okay, who's, whose side are we on here? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to figure out? Um, so right now it's sort of enough to be a fly on the wall and just kind of watch this train wreck unfold. Um, but I think long-term we're going to need a little bit more, but again, this we're only two issues in um, the art from uh from Bresnan is gorgeous, as are the colors from Adriana Lucas, who, you know, he's he's been I've named him my favorite color artist at least once, if not twice. So, you know, I expect good colors from him and he definitely delivers. So uh there is also a second print of Dark Ride out, uh number one out today. So if you missed the first issue, I would recommend picking up both of them. Uh all right, up next, uh, another Marvel series. That's a Marvel number one. It's Fantastic Four, last town on the left. It's written by Ryan North. Art is by Ivan Coelho. Colors by Jesus Arbatov. And letters by Joe Caramagna. I sort of can't tell you anything about what the story's about because if I mention anything, any references, it's going to just give it away. Uh, I will say this issue focuses on Alicia and Ben. Uh, the last issue, we get a kind of an overhead shot of New York, and it seems like something bad has gone down. I don't know if that's led to the split up of the Fantastic Four, but as a one and done as a standalone issue, this is enjoyable. Works pretty well. Love seeing the interaction between Alicia and Ben. Um, but what I'm missing here is the family feel of a Fantastic Four title, which is something that Dan Slott's uh, version of the series just got completely right. He it, it, continuously, even if you know you had an issue that was focused on Johnny or Ben or or whomever, you all, it always still had that family feel. This doesn't. This feels like it's missing that. And I know that Ryan North, uh, in some of the interviews I saw him do that I read, um, when it was announced he was doing this, he talked about wanting to bring something different and bring something sort of unique and focus on some individual uh, characters for particular issues and then bring them back together. Um, and I guess I can appreciate him wanting to try something different, uh, and it certainly doesn't negate anything that's come before. He's not, you know, retconning stuff away and making it where they're they're not family. Uh, he's just trying something different. And I can respect that. Um, but on the other hand, when I pick up Fantastic Four, I pick it up because I'm I want a book that has that family feel, that family dynamic. Uh, and this just doesn't have it. So um, I'm definitely going to pick up issue two. The art is is gorgeous. Um, both the line work and the colors. Um, it's just a fantastic book. So I continue to be impressed by uh, Coelho's pencils and 
Jesus Arbatov uh, on on colors. Like he's somebody I have, I'm going to have to consider for colors of the year this year. Like I've seen his name a lot. He's been doing a lot of work and he's doing a, a great job. So, but as far as how this book comes together, I'm just not there yet. I'm just going to have to wait and see. Um, you know, because especially for his first issue, it just seems strange not to have the whole team there because they really are a family. So, so we'll see how that plays out. Uh, all right, up next. Another Marvel title, Ghost Rider. We're up to issue number eight. This is from writer Benjamin Percy. Corey Smith is the artist. Oren Jr. on inks. Brian Valenza on colors. And Travis Lanham on letters. Uh, I've talked a lot about Percy's run on Ghost Rider already, about how he's bringing a real horror feel to it, like maybe more of a hard-edge horror than we've ever had in a Ghost Rider book. It's always felt magical and mystical, but it's not ever felt um, dangerous, I'll say, or very rarely, very rarely have we worried that um, Johnny was, uh, you know, in danger, that there's, there's horrific things, there's monsters, there's depravity, there's, you know, evil out there lurking and, and the ghostwriter is part of that world. But that's really what Benjamin Percy has brought to this uh, this series these days, there's the stakes feel so high and Johnny, he's not, you know, it's not the old Johnny where all he could think about was, Oh, woe is me. I have this terrible curse. How do I get rid of this demon inside me? He's on some level, he's accepted it. That's the kind of the version of, um, of Johnny blaze we get from Benjamin Percy. Um, he's accepted it and he's going to do the, do the best he can. Well, if I'm going to be cursed, Having this demon inside me, Zarathos, I'm going to use it for good. I'm going to help people that need help. I'm going to fight off evil monsters and magical creatures and that sort of thing. So um, really digging on this. The art by Corey Smith has been fantastic throughout. Um, get a little bit of body horror, but um, not so much that it's off-putting because I'm not a big body horror guy. I will say that the um, the villain, if you will, the antagonist of the story who's sort of pursuing Johnny. Uh, at the beginning, we saw the one that was cut out of his head. Exhaust is the villain's name. He's got such a great aesthetic, uh, visual aesthetic. I talked before about what a great job Corey Smith did in designing him. So yeah, this is, again, a horror book from Marvel. Ghost Rider is a horror book these days, and I have mixed feelings on that. Um, but I think based on the strength of Percy's writing and based on the strengths of Corey Smith's line work that I'm still all in. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon on, on Ghost Rider, even though it is, has more of a horror feel than I might necessarily have predicted that I would like, but, uh, pretty interesting new ideas. Um, and yeah, just a different feel. It feels like Johnny Blaze, you know, the, the characterization is done very well by Percy. So, uh, props to him for that. Uh, all right, another Marvel book up next. This is Moon Knight 17. I cannot believe we're on 17 of Moon Knight uh, already. Jed McKay's the writer. Artist is Alessandro Capuccio. Colors by Rochelle Rosenberg and letters by Corey Petit. Uh, we saw last time that uh, Moon Knight was making a deal to get an invite to the big vampire convention, for lack of a better term, um, the big meeting that structure, which is this vampire uh, organization that pretty much runs in New York underworld these days. So um, with the fallout of, of him trying to get the invitation and Hunter's Moon being taken out by some uh, assassins, Grand Maul and, uh, and Nemin, uh last issue, it's kind of reawakened this idea of uh, a desire for vengeance in uh, in Mark Spector. And so he he shows just how formidable, once again, just how formidable he is, uh, especially one on his home turf of the Midnight Mission. So tons of great action in this one from Capuccio, um, but also some interesting uh, plot points and, um, and story beats. Um, I mean, just the fact that we're, you know, much like Ghost Rider, Moon Knight's sort of a horror book these days. It certainly feels that way with vampires as supporting characters that we've had from the very beginning. So 
how this might play out in the future of the whole Marvel universe with vampires and where they are um, is kind of interesting. Um, the other thing I wonder is how much of the DID disassociative identity disorder we're going to see from, um, from Jed McKay in this, you know, through, uh, through Johnny, uh, <laughs> through Mark Spector. I told you guys I was tired. Um, because, you know, when I had uh, Jed on to talk about this series, you know, one of the, one of the things I mentioned was how he was staying away from that. And he's like, yeah, that was kind of editorial wanted, wanted me to stay away. But then it felt like as soon as the show was over, he brought it in, but he's not hit, hitting us over the head with it. So kind of curious to see where that aspect of the story goes as well. So we'll have to, uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, like I said, a lot of action in this issue and Capuccio's art does a fantastic job uh, making it feel dark and scary and menacing, but still, uh, conveying that action really, really well. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Seven Sons, Part 6. This is written by Robert Windham and Kelvin Mao. Art by Jay Lee. Colors by June Chung. Lettering by Crank. Um, uh, what can I say about this title? It's been an interesting ride, is what I'll say. Um, it has such an interesting feel overall, just based on the Jay Lee art. The idea of religion being leveraged uh, to manipulate the whole world and uh, take power for oneself is uh, is an interesting idea as well. The book sort of pivoted after the first three or four issues uh, with the kind of philosophical ideas like that of what religion can be and how it can be um, co-opted and, um, and used as a tool to manipulate people's sort of these big ideas into more of like this political thriller almost about the sort of the behind the scenes and pulling the strings on these seven sons who are, you know, one is supposed to be the, uh, the, the Messiah returning to earth, the, the, the Christian Messiah. So throughout the series, we've seen these brothers um, die off one by one um, through various actions uh, till we're left with only one. So obviously he's the, he's the return, right? He's the promised return. So as that event is coming up in the timeline of the book, we're seeing the political intrigue and action really ramp up. So how this is all going to tie together, I have no idea, but it's become very compelling. Um, but again, it has a certain look. Uh, you know, it is Jay Lee art and Jay Lee has one of the most recognizable styles in all of comics, I think. Uh, and it's not for everybody. So if you're not a fan of Jay Lee, I would say, should probably stay away. Um, I think the story, first of all, the, the visual storytelling is fantastic and, and very dynamic page layouts as well. So if there's anything I don't like about Jay Lee, it's just the way he draws faces and his lines, uh, his line weights tend to be, which is really strange for me to say, tend to be a little <laughs> too light. I usually like, you know, the, the lighter the line weight, the better. Um, but I think that contributes to the, the aesthetic that his faces have that are just, just look that just look weird. So I have no idea where this is going to go. But like I said, it has become um, really, really compelling. So uh, definitely long for the full ride on that one. All right, back over to Marvel. This is a book that we had a chance to ask J.M. DeMatteis about. It's Spider-Man: The Lost Hunt, issue number one. It's from the uh, written by the aforementioned J.M. DeMatteis. Edar Messius is the penciler. Uh, Bellardino Bravo does the inks. Nera J, uh, no, sorry, Naraj Menon and Chris Peter do the colors and Joe Caramagna on letters. Um, this is a big challenge for JM and, and his uh, creative partners. And I, I wish I had thought to ask this about this series when he was on the show. It's just, it wasn't until I read this first issue that it kind of occurred to me. So anybody who was reading Spider-Man comics in the eighties knows Craven's last hunt. They've probably, if they don't own it, they owned it at one time. They've read it. Like it was just a seminal Spider-Man story and it's critically acclaimed and it's beloved. And it's been reprinted in various collections uh, deservedly. So throughout the years. So you talk about writing a sequel to that in a lot of ways with this, um, the lost hunt. And that's a big challenge. 
you know, you're following a story that everybody kind of knows that's got incredible Mike Zek artwork, that's got just a certain feel and a certain aesthetic. So you pick up this issue and and I even did this and I think I think I did it subconsciously. I'm reading it and I think in the back of my mind I'm sort of comparing it, right? Like it's got this incredible legacy in this uh to live up to, this huge bar. It's you know unfair to compare, but you can't at least I couldn't help I think again sub- on a subconscious level to compare the two. Um, and so while this was enjoyable and, and the art by, um, Edar Messias was fantastic. Um, I just felt like there was something missing and I just couldn't quite put my finger on it until I finished reading it. And I, I stopped to try to figure out, I'm like, so what, what is it about that story? Is it missing emotion? No, not at all. It's got emotion in spades. It's got fantastic art. The pacing is like on point. Um, great visual storytelling. Uh, and again, I just go back to emotion. Like, like that's the number one thing I think that this first issue of this um, this miniseries offered was just so much emotion from Peter, from MJ, from Gregor, who is the big bad in the series, if you will. He, uh, if you're not familiar with Gregor, he's basically Craven the Hunter's assistant. So you can understand why, he, you know, at this point in time uh, in the Marvel timeline that Gregor might want revenge on Peter. It hasn't been that long since in Gregor's mind, Peter had, uh, had killed Craven, drove him to blow his brains out or what have you. So you can see why Gregor would uh, would come after him. So that angst, that anger, that desire for revenge, um, all of that emotion that Gregor brings to the book is illustrated really well by Messius. The trauma that Peter's dealing with, the fear, Mary Jane's frustration with not being able to help him and not being able to understand what's going on. Like all of that emotion is like right up front, like right in your face. And that it's a strength and it's a skill. And it's uh, to the credit of the creative team. They've been able to bring so much emotion here. But again, when I'm reading this, I'm struck with that and I'm waiting. Okay. So, but what's behind that? What more is there to this story? Because there was a lot of emotion in uh, Craven's Last Hunt, but then it backed it up with the ideas of you know what it is to be a hero and um, and how noble Peter is, and you know regardless of if he's in the costume or not, um, just what he brings to the role. And I know that Demetrius uh, is going to explore that a little more here because you know he basically told us that in in the uh, in the interview when we were talking to him, you know, we talked about the fact that he wanted to explore the fact that even if Peter doesn't have his powers, even if he's not in the costume, he's still a hero. It's not the, the Spider-Man costume. It's not the Spider-Man powers that make him a hero. There's something inherent in Peter that's heroic. Um, we didn't get much of that here. We got some hints. And again, th- it's not like we need it all in the first issue, like let it play out in, in, you know, its own time. Um, but I'm just trying to explain why when I, read this i was like what is it that's missing what is it that i'm not like i I guess i just expected myself to have a little bit bigger reaction um but again i think subconsciously i was comparing it to craven's last hunt um and you know just having way too high of expectations because this is a good book like again the art's fantastic great color work great emotion um great scripting you know, all things I would expect from um, a creative team like this. I, this is the first time I've ever seen Messius's pencils. And, and they, again, they're just fantastic. But I mean, this is the quality I expect from a DiMatteis book, uh, to be honest. So on that level, it delivered. Uh, I think we, you know, we definitely got to give it a couple more, three, four more issues before we can say, where's that next level? Where's that next layer? Because it's just so hard to do, especially, you know, given the, the lineage that this series uh, is drawing from in a lot of ways. So, uh, all right, let's see what's up next. Sorry, my voice is going out. Been a long day. Uh, all right, up next, Love Everlasting. We're up to issue number four. It's written by Tom King. Elsa Chartier is the artist. Matt Hollingsworth on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, this is... An interesting book. You know, we've talked a lot about it before. 
there's this girl, Joan, she's jumping around through different comic book romance stories. I mean, for lack of a better term, if she agrees to marry somebody or fall in love, that's when all of a sudden she's ripped out of that multiverse or that version of reality and put in another one to start all over. Like what a horrific thing to, to happen to you, like to be trapped in romance story after romance story with all its tropes and that kind of thing. Um, definitely a throwback art style by Chartier. So it's working on all those levels, but I will say that um, issue four here, I'm ready to start getting some answers. Who's doing the hopping? Who's, you know, making Joe Joan jump to all these different realities and more importantly, why? Um, so I think we've had enough setup to be honest with you. Uh, and although some of the issues we've had her jumping multiple times, um, this one is pretty much all told, uh, in one reality in France during world war one. So why is that the case? And again, who's pulling the strings and why I'm ready to start getting some of those answers. But even if we don't, like, is this still good enough to keep reading? I think it is, even, even though I never thought I would enjoy romance comics. But, I mean, they were pretty po- popular. They may have been the most popular uh, genre of comics for a while there in the 50s. Um, when superheroes kind of took a back seat to some other genres, TV comics, westerns, horror, you know, um, EC horror and all that. Um, but I, I think the reason that uh, even as a romance comic why this is kind of interesting putting aside the other like mysterious multiversal jumping and what have you is because ultimately you know romance comics are about relationships and most of us have had uh, romantic relationships in our lives so there's a a relatability there there's a you know the opportunity to put yourself in the shoes of either joan or whoever her particular love interest is for the uh the, the issue and Tom King's a great uh, writer when it comes to displaying uh, relationships and uh, Chartier is a fantastic visual storyteller. So it's working on a lot of levels, um, but I, I am, I won't say I'm anxious to have it go to the next level, but I'm, I'm anticipating finding out more about what's going on because I know what a fantastic idea man Tom King is. So we'll, uh, we'll see when that's, that series is ready to take it to the next level. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Radiant Black number 19. It's written by Kyle Higgins. Art is by Marcelo Costa. Inks by Carlos Eduardo. And letters by Becca Carey. Uh, another great book that balances relationships and emotion. Certainly, the relationship between Nathan and Marshall has changed. Once again, we saw last issue, they agreed to start sharing the Radiant. Uh, you know, first Nathan had it, then Nathan was wounded, we thought mortally. And the Radiant went to Marshall and Marshall's kind of gotten used to it. And now all of a sudden, you know, Nathan recovers and they're sharing it. So it's an interesting dynamic. I don't know that the Radiants are necessarily meant to be shared, but it fits in with the feel, the teen book feel um, that Kyle Higgins and company give us. You know, we've met Radiant Red, we've met Radiant Pink, we've met Radiant Yellow. Um, and in this particular issue, there's a, an artifact that shows up in the skies of Brazil. And um, there's a last page reveal about what that artifact is. That's pretty interesting. Um, we get a little bit of action in the beginning. And then the majority of the book between that early action and uh, this object showing up from Brazil, we get a lot of relationship dynamics between Marshall and Nathan, um, between uh, Marshall and some of the other radiants. So it's great character work and it's definitely planting seeds for future story, right? Because at some point, these radiants are all going to have to come together. They're going to have to work together. How does that work with Marshall and uh, Nathan sharing a radiant? Will they both get their own radiance at some point? Like, there's a lot of questions to be answered, but uh, I love the setup here. I love what's going on. And I love the, the, the seeds that are being planted because I can see a big radiant team up on the horizon. Uh, Marcelo Costa art is fantastic as always. Um, if I have any nitpick on his art, um, it's that it's not to say he never breaks the panel, 
but I feel like he'll do it like in the beginning half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, like everything is just really standard. So um, I do wish he took a little more chances with his page layouts, like the way he lays the, uh, the panels out on the page, as well as um, breaking the panels a little bit more to, to, to uh, give emphasis to a particular character or a particular action that's going on. Uh, but again, minor nitpick. So, uh, all right, last book I'm going to talk about in detail, Spider-Man number two, End of the Spider-Verse, part two. This is from writer Dan Slott. Mark Bagley's the penciler. John Dell does the inks. Edgar Delgado on colors and Joe Caramagna on letters. Um, you know, I was real excited when I heard about this. Dan Slott and Mark Bagley, you know, two legendary Spider-Man creators finally working together on a, a Spider-Man book. Um, but I got to say, and th- this may not come as a surprise to uh, a lot of people and, you know, goes back to something that I said, you know, just earlier in this episode. And that's when you have a character that is giving birth to all these other spinoffs, I feel like it lessens the character. And certainly when you talk about these Spider-Verse stories, I feel that way, you know, we've got 85 different spider characters. And in my mind, it, it sort of diminishes the, the uniqueness and the individuality of, of Peter Parker as Spider-Man. Um, and what's interesting is slot does something in the story to kind of push back on that a little bit in a lot of ways. I don't know how well it works. Um, but what I will say is technically, this is a gorgeous comic. Pacing is great. Scripting there's humor, fantastic pencil work from Bagley um, so it's hard not to just read it and enjoy it for what it is. Uh, I think I can't help, you know, I'm a Marvel fan. I'm a superhero fan. I'm a Spider-Man fan. So I, you know, I'm reading this and I'm enjoying it. Um, but I'd be lying if I didn't say it at times I'm pulled out of the story by thinking to myself, God, there's so many Spider-Man characters. There's just too many. Um, again, I just think it diminishes the, the uniqueness, the special feel that, um, uh, that Spider-Man should have. Um, but I get it. I mean, it, when you're writing it, there's always that temptation and you can create new spider characters and, you know, somebody may pick up this book as their very first comic ever and fall in love with one of these um, versions of Spider-Man that, that aren't the version that I know. And it could become their favorite character. It could, could become uh, you know, gateway for them. And it's not to say that these characters aren't going to become important. Um, but uh Again, it's just I can I can be overwhelmed with spider characters. It's it's possible. It's just like I can be over oh uh, overwhelmed with Batman uh, characters from DC. So anyway, uh, it's worth picking up if you're a big Spider Man fan and you like seeing those different versions of Spider Man. So uh, I'll let you, I'll leave that up to you to decide for yourself. Uh, all right, let me give a rundown on some other books that you might want to be on the lookout for today. Uh, there is the second issue of Bad Ideas Orc Island, number two, uh, over at Boom Studios. There's a new four-part miniseries written by David Boer called Specs, number one, that I can't wait to check out. Um, at Dark Horse, the penultimate issue of Minor Threats from writers Patton Oswalt and Jordan Bloom. Excited to check that one out as well. From DC, and again, you can listen to our thoughts on these on our DC Spotlight from yesterday. Batgirls number 12, Batman Incorporated number two, Batman Urban Legends number 21, Batman versus Robin number three of five. Yeah, it was a big Batman week for sure. Uh, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths number six of seven. That series is getting ready to wind down. There's a Death of Superman 30th anniversary special, number one, and it, it has the creative team's there's four stories, and the creative teams for those four stories are the creative teams that were on the four Superman titles back when Superman 75 came out and Superman was killed. Uh, they're all new stories. There's not this uh, 30th anniversary special isn't a uh, a reprinting of Superman 75 or anything like that. It's it's brand new stories. So just so you know, uh, we also have I Am Batman number 15. Uh, New Golden Age, number one, one shot from Jeff Johns with a, a host of artists. That was both mine and Rocky's favorite issue. I love what it bodes for the future of the DC universe. So it's going to lead into Justice Society, and it, it 
is kind of a follow-up to Flashpoint Beyond. So definitely pick that up if you're a Jeff Johns fan. Uh, also, Multiversity Teen Justice number six came to a close. Um, we've got uh, Spider-Man, uh, sorry, Spider-Man, Superman, Son of Kal-El, number 17, uh, and then Wildcats makes its debut, written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Steven Segovia. And finally, Wonder Woman number 793 is out this week as well. Uh, so over at um, Image, in addition to the uh, books that I already talked about, we've got Do a Powerbomb, number six of seven, Kaya, number two, uh, Least We Can Do, number three, which I, I've been loving that series and I meant to read it and I totally spaced on that. Um, so uh, I apologize to Yolanda and uh, Elisa, who are the two creators of that, because I do love that book, and I I meant to read it and talk about it in, in more detail. I mean, I'm still not going to spoil, um, but I just I, I it didn't come the review copy didn't come the way the rest of the image review copies come. Um, it usually does, but it didn't this time, um, and I just I missed out on it. So uh, what I might do is I might, if I get a chance, read that and just do like a Twitter review and put it out on Twitter to remind everybody because it's it's a really great series and I'm so disappointed. I totally forgot about it until I saw it on the list right now and I feel bummed that I didn't read it. Uh, anyway, we also have uh, Soldier Stories, number one. That's a top cow one-shot. It's stories that are written by actual soldiers, actual veterans, Um and it's an anthology. There, I think there's four stories in there, and it's really, really great. It was, and uh, there's a great forward by one of um, the people who helped put it together. And there's a, I hope it does well because there's a possibility we could get more. And I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to hear these uh, stories that these veterans are writing. You know, they're pulling from real life experience, uh, war, and stories of camaraderie and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think that's very worthwhile. Uh, also, Spawn, latest issue of Spawn is out, Spawn number 335. Uh, there's a new number one called Two Graves, number one, which I did read, which was really kind of strange and out there. And I'm not sure what it is <laughs> trying to be. So that's why I didn't talk about it more. Uh, but if you're so inclined, you can pick that up. Uh, from Marvel, we've got Black Panther Unconquered, number one. Uh, Damage Control, number four of five, penultimate issue of that series is out. Uh, Marauders, number eight. We also have Sabretooth and the Exiles, number one of five, kicking off a new uh, miniseries over in the X-Men corner of the Marvel Universe. Uh, for Star Wars, we've got Star Wars The High Republic, number two. Uh, Venom, number 13, is also out. Wolverine, 27. And finally, X-Men Legends, number four, is uh, the last uh, Marvel book that I'll mention. Uh, let's see. Uh, from Titan, we've got the latest issue of Gun Honey, Gun Honey Blood for Blood, number two, which I know, uh, I'm sorry, number three, which I know a lot of people are, are digging on that. Uh, and I think that's it. Oh, I should mention that Whatnot, you know, that platform where people sell collectibles. Um, I feel like it's mostly comics, but I don't know for sure. I'm not, you know, I'm not on there enough. And when I do go on there, I only look at the comics. So maybe there's other things that are just as big, but I definitely feel like it's uh, a comic centric platform, but anyway, that somehow they have their own publishing imprint now where they've put out several things. Um, and they have a, a series coming out this week. So it's a new number one, it's called Ninja Funk. And the only reason I picked it up is because, um, it uh, it had some really cool uh, Tyler Kirkham covers, so I went ahead and and picked it up. So it's supposed to be kind of this high stakes adventure with this ragtag group of misfits that come together. And I yeah, I don't know what to think of it. I bought my copy based on the strength of the cover, as I said. But um, during the live stream for my uh, for my LCS, a lot like they went quick. Like people were really digging on the um, the Ninja Funk, uh, and I don't know if it was based on the covers or if you know the story, or they're just specking on it. Like I have no idea, but uh, it was definitely a hot book. So 
you may want to pick yourself up a copy if you can uh if you can find one because i think they're going to sell out so uh anyway that's gonna do it for this episode everybody apologize that my voice is not quite up to snuff really tired as i uh as I mentioned before, but we appreciate you hanging out and listening. Hope you get out and pick up your comics this week and uh, that's going to do it. So we appreciate you listening as always, and we'll talk to you next time. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple podcast, Stitcher, Google play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.